right, welcome to the 14th episode of Social X, Humentum's podcast. I'm here with Sarah Angel Johnson from Save the Children, and so excited to talk about digital transformation today with her. Um, Sarah, you recently did a webinar for our Humentum members around this topic as well, which was so well-received, so many interesting questions afterwards. Um, that people practically demanded we have a more in-depth conversation with you on the podcast. So we're really happy to have you today. Thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. So I'll do a quick intro, and then, of course, I'll let Sarah do a more in-depth intro um, and tell us more about her role and what she does in the world of digital transformation. So Sarah is the Chief Information Officer and Uh, Vice President of Technological Solutions, I think I got that right, at Save the Children, uh, which is a large international uh, development organization and one of Humentum's members. So Sarah, could you tell us a little bit more about, you know, what you do at Save the Children in that role? Absolutely. And I can go into all the weeds later, but if I had to sum it up, what I do is I'm a change agent. And that's really my personal and professional brand is I'm a change agent. And how do I do that? It's by integrating business and technology solutions to scale social impact. And so digital transformation, this came up on the webinar as well. There's a lot of definitions out there for what exactly that means. You know, how would you define digital transformation? Yeah, it's such a great question. I mean, it's become one of those buzzwords and it means different things to different people. And that's part of the problem. So I'm going to give you my definition, but my recommendation to those who are listening is to go and ask what digital transformation means for your organization. I did this myself. When I joined Save the Children, I asked my CEO, Because without understanding that, there is likely going to be a misunderstanding pervasively across the organization and what you think of digital transformation versus your colleague versus a partner. So when I talked to my CEO about this together, she and I aligned that for Save the Children, digital transformation is really a mindset change. And what do I mean by that mindset change? So I mean three things. It's about maximizing opportunity across everything we do better, faster, cheaper, really then to um, impact, increase impact for our mission. The second thing is it integrates business and technology strategy and execution, as I mentioned earlier, my role here. And then the third thing is it really drives a new kind of human-centric culture thinking and way of work, which is really important in digital transformation. Great. Well, that yeah, that's, that's great advice to make sure you understand your there's so many things it can mean to make sure if you're going to kick start this within your organization that you're all aligned, right? Senior leadership's aligned. Exactly. Um, so you have a lot of varied experience working in these types of roles within organizations and different types of organizations, uh, corporate, nonprofit. Um, and I've heard you speak before a little bit about the differences in kind of digital capacity and digital what digital a digital first plan would look like within or within different types of organizations. Can you speak to that a little bit, kind of what you've noticed, the difference between corporate and nonprofit? I think you've mentioned specifically before kind of resources, culture, values. So that's a great memory. Uh, It's exactly those three things. And I'll start with an anecdote that I will forever remember myself. I have this picture of when I left my last for-profit job and when I started my first nonprofit job, this picture in my head 
of, I walked through the doors of Girl Scouts headquarters in Manhattan. And I, it just, it's so clear in my head of then asking, all right, I'm so excited. So where's my team? And the answer was, what team? <laughs> and, okay, so where's my budget? What budget? <laughs> and, and so what did you guys expect me to do? That's why we hired you. <laughs> and it's just so classic of that stark difference between for-profit and nonprofit. And to go back to those three things that you mentioned, so resources. You know, when I left uh, my last for-profit job, which was IBM, I was leading 25,000 people. And I recall saying to myself so often, I don't have the resources. I don't have the money. I don't have the people. We just can't get it done. And then jumping over to nonprofit and not having a team and not having a, a robust budget. I mean, scrappy is the word that comes to mind. In nonprofit, I learned how to be scrappy, truly roll up your sleeves and everybody does just what needs to get done. And then value is different. So at Girl Scouts, when I rolled out the iconic Girl Scout cookie program online, I was so hard on myself at first because it wasn't the same kind of quality that I associated with my for-profit job. And it wasn't mm-hmm. until a CEO, a Girl Scout CEO pulled me aside and said, Sarah, you've got to stop that. You have no idea what you did to pull us into the digital age and, and help us just move our iconic Girl Scout cookie program in a way that we've been trying for over a decade. So I saw that the value was different, right? And quality is great. And that's really in the for-profit world. In the nonprofit world, it was about impact. That was she was, that's what she was telling me is you had impact and that's what we value. And then that last piece around culture, I could spend days talking about the difference between for-profit and nonprofit culture. But I'll I'll say that there is. For me, what it nets out to be is in for-profit, I find, I tend to find a more rigorous or transparent decision-making culture. So, you know, everybody knows their role and you know how decisions are made. Whereas in nonprofit, and I think it's because everyone is so passionate about the mission it gets convoluted. And this is where you hear it's all consensus driven and, you know, decision making is hard. And I I really think it comes from a good place. It's that in nonprofit, we are here for the mission. So we all care so deeply that we're, and we all have our, our own views of how to achieve our mission impact. And so the culture is different in that way. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, I actually want to, you mentioned the Girl Scouts projects and I want to hear a little more about that. (laughs) It sounds like it might've been your very first um, nonprofit experience, but that was in 2014, I know. And that is an $860 million program um, that a lot of our, at least U.S. listeners will be familiar with the Girl Scout cookie program, (laughs) like getting the knocks on the doors and you fill out the paper. At least this was the pre-digital. I think I'm probably remembering more like when I was in Girl Scouts, like the (laughs) pre-digital, the pre-digital ways that it it was run, but it was very much like Girl Scouts, young Girl Scouts sell cookies kind of door to door. How did you digitize that program? And what were some, I guess, challenges you found along the way in addition to limited resources and kind of, you know, the differences we just discussed between having a big budget and a big team? So it is an $860 million program um, and it is the lifeblood of Girl Scouts. Mm -hmm. 
What people may not be as aware of, though, um, you might be, uh, you said you had some experience at Girl Scouts, is that it is really around teaching girls business, how to be entrepreneurs. And so it, it becomes a program and it's not just a money maker. And that the money goes towards even furthering the girl's development. And one of the things that I did was start first with that. What is the intent of what we're trying to do? A lot of times people had asked me along the way, oh, well, you just go to Amazon and you just put it online. It's as easy as that. No, then we're not really teaching the girls about business. And this was really about when that CEO talked to me about pulling Girl Scouts into the digital age, it was about teaching girls e-commerce, teaching them supply chain, teaching them marketing, digital marketing, teaching them about data and how you use data to then help your business. It was about helping girls understand business from a digital perspective. And so we started there and we started with what will that take? How do we build the digital aspects of this around the girl? And then first with the girl and then with the volunteers and the parents and the communities that support the girl. So there were different experiences for each pieces of that, but always with the human first. And then we did have to start looking at the operations. There's the whole supply chain, all of that. Uh, it was quite a learning experience for me in terms of how we how we looked at that. What helped was that the deadline for launching was already set. I had six months to do it. That's it. Six months from walking in the door until it was released. And, uh, and, and it wasn't just released, it was press conferences. <laughs> so it also helped to have that pressure on. And so it was really around just how do we do this as quickly, efficiently? I think in nonprofit, two other things that I'll mention is going back to the consensus-driven driven decision-making, making sure I pulled in all of the stakeholders immediately to start with a shared vision and shared decision-making so we didn't get caught in that later on down the line. Um, and then also it was really about, because of that pressure of the deadline, we were able to iterate and experiment fast, where I find in nonprofit, it is difficult and challenging to fail fast. And it's part of the cultural change that we are trying to change right now around international NGOs. And it's almost like we didn't have a choice in that, in that Girl Scout scenario. And so we just, we just moved fast. Yeah, you mentioned that, you know, it being difficult to fail fast in nonprofits, what are other kind of common barriers you've noticed in nonprofit organizations in terms of embracing a really kind of fast-paced, you know, innovative digital strategy? Yeah, I'll, three is, I like the number. <laughs> there are three things. Uh, the first one, and you heard me talk about it a little bit with the example of Girl Scouts, is really about humans first, not technology first. That tends to be, and it's not just with nonprofits. It tends to be with a lot of organization. Oh, we want the latest and greatest tech. Oh, this is going to solve all of our problems. Mm, that's really starting with the, with the how first without really truly understanding the who and the what. And for nonprofits to be successful, we really need to transition into this human-centered design mindset. So humans first, understanding their needs locally. I mean, that's so critical right now in the shifts that are happening in international yeah. NGOs, locally understanding, personalized, individual, unique needs for Save the Children that would be children and communities. 
And then the second thing is really around starting at the end and working your way backwards. I often find in, in NGO land, nonprofit land, we use a phrase like building the plane while we're flying it is one of them. It's just something, it's, it, we don't want to be there. Right? We, we really want to be at starting at the end, understanding the outcomes, and then working your way backwards as to how you achieve it. Um, and then the last piece, which I've talked about over and over, is that cultural piece, right? It's the, how do you look at integrating business and mission and technology all together so you don't have a separate digital strategy? It is embedded. Um, and really looking at culturally, then how does it become everyone's job? Everyone is accountable for a digital transformation, not just one person. And, and there are a couple of things to like overcoming those barriers, I think. And, and they're kind of tough for nonprofits to think about. But the first one is investing in leaders and skills for the change. If you don't have the right leaders and skills, it, it's, it's again, starting not at the end and working your way backwards. You're like trying to navigate your way to an unknown future, um, engaging with partners, Right. This is why I love Umentum. Right. I mean, engaging with partners to help. We should not be doing these things alone. It's that collective impact. And then approaching funding differently to fund the change. A lot of times I'll be told, oh, we just don't have the money to do that, Sarah. Oh, I, I disagree. Let's talk about what impact we're looking for. And then we'll go find the money to do it. And, cha- and in that, looking at funding differently is also then looking at the role of the CIO differently. Because the CIO, in my mind, is the best kept secret in fundraising in nonprofit land. So just the combination of those those two, when you're trying to approach a digital transformation, is powerful. You can fund the change that you need. If you can clearly articulate it, it sounds like, right? If you know what the end goal is. Yeah. Exactly. (laughs) There is kind of a culture at nonprofits of build the plane, just build the plane while you're flying it. You've got to do it, right? Yeah. Um, and that happens a lot. And that's probably, a, it's probably a little less prevalent, maybe at, at corporate positions where maybe there's more funding and more people and more of a culture, like you said, it fail fast. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I also think the culture is very specific to nonprofits. Uh, and, and there's also some things to talk about, like how in nonprofits, particularly international NGOs, and this was a learning for me at Save the Children, how is behavior incentivized. And and that I think is a really interesting topic because when you start to get underneath that, it starts to uncover some really interesting cultural things um, that have to be changed. And then the good things that work, you know, kept, Um, but we really have to look differently at how, how international NGOs operate. Humentum has a similar project, uh, our international financial reporting for nonprofit organizations. And the, the, purpose of this project is to do something very similar, but in the world of financial reporting, which is there's going to be one, ideally one set of standards, financial reporting standards across nonprofit organizations so that they can much more effectively work with donor agencies and know what to expect. And the donor agencies then don't have demands that certain nonprofits based on their resources um, can't meet. So we're really big at Humentum on kind of harmonizing um, standards across the organ across the sector so that this this type of equity can be implemented that way. So I'd love to hear more about kind of your vision for what the data fabric could be for the sector and what that is now or what it could be. 
I love that word harmonizing. It's such a great word that resonates with me in this topic. And I'll also say that I'm not sure my vision is solid yet. And I know I just preach, start with the end in mind, but I also need enough information to create a shared vision. So what I'll say is I have a hypothesis for sustainable growth and impact. And I think many of us have a similar hypothesis around this data fabric. And my evolution in thinking is actually hot off the press. I've got this additional facet to it that I started talking about and socializing and getting feedback on that I see this, um, what I'm calling a growth flywheel. So it's like a circle that is all connected. And if we take advocacy and connect it to how it drives policymaking in countries at governments, which if then the policies are changed in the right way, should increase the amount of funding that government governments provide to local programs. And then if those local programs are funded appropriately by government because of the policymaking, it then increases the evidence in the programs and the thought leadership to then drive around to more advocacy, right? Because then you see what works and then you can push the advocacy for additional policymaking. And that growth flywheel goes around and around and my hypothesis is that it's data, it can be data-driven. It, it is sustainable because of data. So I'll explain it one level deeper. Mm-hmm. There are outputs, outcomes, and impact in international NGO and, and nonprofits, right, in research. And we're really great at measuring outputs. How many? How many advocates? How many policies? How much money? How many children in programs, right? We're really good at measuring outputs, And that's kind of what I mean by where is behavior being driven? And we are incentivized, actually, to measure the outputs because of the way that funding works and compliance to funding in international NGO land. Now, I would like to push that envelope further and say we are bleeding into outcomes, which is a good thing. And outcomes is how effective, what is a short-term change that we're looking at? So how effective is advocacy for policymaking? How effective is policymaking for driving funding? How effective is funding at the programs, right? How effective from a short-term perspective? Like, for example, um, in Save the Children, outputs would be how many children have access to a vaccine. An outcome would be that there is increased access for children to medical um, services. And then impact, which is what we're all after, the long-term change, right? So reducing childhood mortality would be this impact. And that's truly driven by data, right? We can't get to that impact unless we understand all the data underneath it. So my thought is, my hypothesis is, if we can connect all of that in that growth flywheel with a common data model, or maybe it's not that far, some sort of a common data fabric, We can have the true collective impact. It's not just one NGO who's working at this. It's multiple NGOs that are working at this. Because in that flywheel, it actually may not be just one NGO who's pushing every piece of that flywheel around. It's multiples. But if we don't have that common data fabric, I'm not really sure then how do we know effectiveness outcomes? How do we really know the long-term change in a child's life and the impact that we've had so then we can't scale these bespoke things that we're doing. So that's my hypothesis. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> um, according to the UN, you know, this wasn't necessarily a result. I mean, I'm sure the pandemic didn't help, but 
um, three point, you know, 37 billion people are, which is almost half the world's population, uh, still, and most of them women are still offline. Um, and you and I have talked about, we're not sure exactly what that definition, you know, what that means, um, in detail, but it means that at least half the world's population still is having trouble accessing the technology they need to fully thrive and kind of be on par with, with everyone else in the professional world. Um, and so, you know, I'm interested, well, I'm interested specifically in how kind of the pandemic might've changed your work a little bit at Save the Children or how it impacted Save the Children. It certainly had impacts for Humentum and uh, what people, what our members were needing from us and things like that, but also how you see it potentially playing out at the sector level um, with, with this also being a priority for donors, you know, to get the rest of the world to get, you know, to get that second half online. Yeah, I'll, I'll start with the sector first, and then I'll work my way backwards because I actually wasn't at Save the Children when the pandemic hit initially. Oh, I was okay. At a different organization. Uh, believe it or not, I started at Save the Children mid-pandemic and have yet to meet a person in person in Save the Children since I started. So it's yeah. it's, it's just changing everything, you know. Right. Yeah, that it doesn't really actually is. being a fully virtual organization ourselves. That doesn't surprise me. Like everyone who joined never meets anyone in person. <laughs> but but yeah, we would normally at least have like these annual staff retreats and stuff. So I I totally understand. Yeah, it's just been a wild ride, but great. So so let me start first with just that really big question though in the sector and yeah, bridging the digital divide is just such a big topic because it's not as simple as, oh, hey, let's provide a community with broadband and digital devices. I think that's a very naive way of looking at it. It's really about systemic change attached to such broader issues such as digital literacy, advocacy and policies like we talked about earlier that drive a different behavior from communications and technology companies and governments making relevant digital content which speaks to DEI. Like if we don't have relevant content pushing through these channels, these digital channels, why would somebody even want to access um, that information? I mean, I could go on and on and on. So I think in the sector, it comes back to, <laughs> actually, I just connected this dot. It comes back to that hypothesis of, well, maybe a way to approach this is the advocacy to policymaking, to funding, to program, to thought leadership and what works. It's, it's just, it's systemic though. And it's very, very broken. Um, I would say at Save the Children specifically, the ways that I am seeing it play out is we are being very intentional about localizing the solutions for what is needed. It's, It's made it even more apparent. What channels do they have access to? Maybe it's not digital, right? When we were combating misinformation about COVID-19, yes, we were pushing SMS texts. Yes, we were pushing, you know, chat bots. But you know what? We also have people in the back of a pickup truck, you know, with microphones and megaphones just talking to people. It's not always a digital solution. And so we we have to balance that. Um, and, and it speaks to the digital divide that needs to be bridged, though. Right. And it, and it is a systemic issue. Um, I will just touch really quickly, um, although it may not be in the international sector, when the pandemic hit, I was at a different organization called Year Up, which is a U.S. domestic organization who works with um, about four to five thousand students per year uh, or young adults per year. And um, the goal is to place them in professional jobs Um, without four-year degrees. So these are young adults who don't have access to higher education and we're just, year up is dispelling the myth of four-year degrees. 
27 locations all in person across the U.S. was how the program was originally designed. COVID, everything shut down. Had to very quickly move to virtual learning, virtual coaching. And in, in that model, it's not just an educational institution. There is a, a, um, a motto there that is high support, um, high expectations, or high expectations, high support. So we have high expectations for these young adults, but the support has to be so high, the human support. And to be able to do that in a virtual world with no advance notice was um, very, very difficult. And I have so many lessons learned from that in, in how to do that. It was also, though, I think for CIOs, sort of this time where you know, we felt really valued. <laughs> it lifted our value out of what was typically known before as more like back-end infrastructure. Um, and so it was a really great time as a silver lining, although I never would have wished that on that on our world, but it was a great time for CIOs to really prove our value. Yeah, no, no doubt. <laughs> um, you said not to put you overly on the spot, but you said you had so many lessons learned from that. Could you just share one of them? Because I think that I think a lot of organizations can relate to that moment when the pandemic first hit and, you know, there's, there's a lot of examples of really quick pivots, some that worked, some that didn't, some that are still working, some that are the preferred way to do things now. Um, and some that, you know, people are still like, we're going to need to get back in person to get this back on track. So it'd be interesting to hear just one of, one of the shared, one of the lessons learned you had in that, that experience. Yeah, one of the lessons learned I had, and it was, I guess it turns into also a professional growth area that um, I, I have recognized, which is uh, fantastic for me and my personal development. But I wish that I had known right from the start that how valuable my voice was, or was going to become. And from the very beginning, be yell up and yell loud of this is what we need to do. It was, for me, more of a, I think this is what's going to happen, so I'm going to be very cautious about my my, uh, views, and I think we could have had, we could have done it a little bit more seamlessly if I had just yelled up and yelled loud sooner about how we do this, about the technology that we could be using, about how it doesn't have to be the way of taking an in-person program and just transporting it into a Mm. virtual land, right? It it can be done differently because virtual offers digital tools that you may not otherwise have that actually work to your advantage. So I would have, the first lessons learned I had is just yell up and yell loud sooner. And that was for me, something that I'm now taking forward as a lesson learned professionally. Um, I would also say that there is some lessons learned around how how we funded it we could have gotten even more funding, right? <laughs> like, but it's, it's so interesting because hindsight is twenty twenty. I mean, we just didn't know. But my gosh, I wish we had just gone out with these pitches to all these companies and we're just like, please, you know, just fund this and imagine the impact you're going to have. I mean, we, we rolled out for four to 5,000 students within two weeks, fully virtual. And then within, uh, say about a quarter, all had laptops. And to fund that, I mean, was just an incredible investment. And we could have gotten more from donors and funders. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. To have their name kind of on that, the timing, the timing of that too. Um, I know what you mean. Like that's something that now that hindsight being 2020, a lot of 
donors would have loved to put their stamp on, you know? Exactly. And, and oh, and I just thought of one, one other thing, um, partners. I mean, we had partners, but again, hindsight 2020, but if we'd known exactly what this was going to turn into and how long it would be, I would have looked at a handful of strategic partners to just help us propel this forward even quicker and more seamlessly. And, you know, we felt like we were kind of doing it on our own because we weren't quite sure what this was going to turn into, but that's also another lesson learned. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great one. Is there three kind of things you would say are necessary qualities or operational processes or whatever of an organization that wants to consider themselves digital first? Yeah, I, I, I'm going to give you five. No, <laughs> I know. Fine, no. No. <laughs> uh, I would say first, embed it in the strategy. It can't be a separate digital transformation strategy. It has to be foundational and it has to be part of the strategy. Then everyone is accountable for it. And then everyone is interdependent on each other for it. So it can't be just, oh, one person, they failed at digital transformation or one function, they failed. It's got to be embedded in the strategy. I would say the second thing is around abundance mindset, which I am such a believer in versus scarcity. So let me explain the difference. So scarcity comes from, and I find this so prevalent in international NGO land, where we say, oh, we don't have enough money. Oh, that costs too much. Oh, we got to buy that. You know, it's very much from a what we don't have versus that abundance mindset, which starts with, this is the impact we want to have. These are the results that we're going to deliver. Well, we can't do that, but we can do this instead. So it's really looking at the outcomes and then figuring out how you do that. Because if you try to approach a digital transformation and, and start from a place of scarcity, it won't be successful. It has to start from a place of abundance where you're thinking about the impacts and what this means for your organization. The third thing is really, and I mentioned it briefly before, but it's that role of the CIO. And think about the role of the CIO differently and hire for that. Because that CIO is not just, it's no longer the role of backend infrastructure. That role of CIO is now bleeding out into integrating mission and tech and business and data all together in so many different ways, fueled and accelerated and propelled by COVID-19 and what that meant for all of us. Um, and then the, the two last things I'll mention, I've mentioned before, but it just is so worth reiterating. It's not about the technology. It's about the human. Start with the end. Start with the human. And then it's, it's about behaviors and incentives, right? If you are trying to fuel a digital transformation only based on cost optimization, think about what that incentive then means for the behavior of the organization versus really looking at the impact, really looking at connectivity, really looking at how to drive your mission better, grow it, strengthen it. I mean, so really look at behaviors and incentives um, because that's really what drives culture. So it's those five things. Yeah. I mean, have you seen that done really well somewhere? Because I think that, that to that last point, behavior is in a, changing behavior to change culture is one of the hardest things um, you can do in an organization from wherever you probably sit within the organization, I'd imagine too. So, you know, do you have an example off the top of your head, maybe of an organization that you've seen do that really well, kind of change, actually do behavior change um, and use incentives that worked? Oh, that's such a great question. 
it's really tough. And, and I think this is systemically what nonprofits are faced with. And it's yeah. very, very difficult. It's, it's hard for me to come up with an example off the top of my head. But I mean, I think there are pockets, right? I mean, there are pockets within organizations who have driven and just taken a leap into digital. For example, uh, if I could be so bold as to say Girl Scouts with digital cooking. <laughs> I mean, they, they, they took a leap, they took a gamble, they embedded it in their strategy. They thought about, they thought about it from an abundance perspective. It's about the impact for the girl. It's not about cost optimization. Um, granted, my role was not CIO at the time. So I don't know that that one quite applies, but they invested in the skills needed, right? They knew that they couldn't find the skill internal. And so they invested in bringing somebody outside in and it didn't start with technology. It was about the girl first mm-hmm. and it did change behavior, right? And, and it started the way that the behavior was changed was by bringing together stakeholders to create a shared vision and what this would mean and the impact for Girl Scouts. So I think, I think there are pockets. It's like the best off the top of my head example that I can come up with, but my goodness, that's a great question. I'll have to think about that. <laughs> so the others can emulate it because I'm sure people would be interested. Um, so I wanted to ask, obviously we're big at learning, big on learning at Humentum um, and professional development. And so if someone listening to this podcast or just, they already kind of knew they're, they're really interested in pursuing a career path that would set them up to become CIO. Cause they're like, I love the idea of a combination of technology and strategy, especially with the CIO role has become, as you've mentioned, um, what would your advice be? Mm. Mentors. First and foremost, I cannot say enough about mentorship, and I know that is another buzzword, just like digital transformation. So I have a formula for mentorship because I'm an engineer and a technologist at heart, so things break down into formulas for me in my head. So I have always throughout my career surrounded myself with four different kinds of mentors. The first one is a peer mentor. That's somebody who is trying to achieve what I'm trying to achieve in my career at the same time. And so you you double your network, you you double your learnings, and you can tell each other real time and with candor. You know, the thing that you did that would change it like this. You know, and and it's just that peer mentorship. Sometimes my peer mentors don't even know they're my peer mentors. They don't have to be formal. The second kind of mentor that I have always is a next step career mentor, and a next step career mentor is somebody that. I could see myself in their role next. And I have usually several of these at one time because careers are not A, B, C, D plans, right? Mm -hmm. There are options available. And that next step career mentor is very time bound. Like, hey, I want to meet with you for three times. I want to learn about your job. I want to understand how you got to where you got to so I can potentially replicate that. And the silver lining is if they leave their job, Hopefully, they are advocating for you to take their job in, as their replacement. The third kind of mentor is a vision mentor and, or a career mentor. And this is somebody who is like where you could see yourself in like 10 plus years. And the goal of that mentor is to advocate on your behalf in circles where you're not. So you're creating like this credibility outside of yourself. And it always comes more believable from somebody else, right? When you're not talking about yourself, but somebody else is talking about you. And then the fourth mentor is so critically important, I think doesn't get enough airtime, is a reverse mentor, especially for CIOs, especially for people in tech and data. The world is changing so fast. 
So I view people who were where I was at before as my reverse mentors because they know more than I do today in my seat. And so for them to help me understand the changing world of digital tech data is, is just incredibly important. My 17-year-old doesn't even know it, but I leverage her as one of my reverse mentors. I swear she knows more about her phone than I do. Right. So mentorship, so critically important. The two other things I'll mention and not go into as depth is around knowing your strengths. So my principle there is around not everybody or everybody can't be perfect at everything. And it's really around finding your strengths and focusing on that and making sure that you are differentiated in that strength, which leads to the third one, which is your professional brand. So think about, I would recommend that if anyone is looking for a CIO career path to do some research and read about some of the leading edge CIOs and what you want to role model in in that kind of a career path and in what they're doing, what is their professional branding? And then in that, start to think about what resonates with you, what's different, what's the same, and really focus though on honing your professional brand. There is, and and you'll notice that the advice I gave is less about specific to CIO career path, but I think that's because CIO is just, it can be anything right now. There isn't one specific thing. It's not just backend infrastructure. It's not just digital transformation. It's not just human-centered design. It's not just data. It's not just tech. It's not just business and tech integrated. It is becoming this change agent transformational role. And so I think it really is what you want to make out of it, uh, which is why I gave more generic answers that are more just professional development. And one, it's also, yeah, it's, there's no linear path. It sounds like, I mean, and a lot of roles are, are changing that way, but especially this one, you know, educationally, like there's not one degree or one kind of background you need to have. Um, exactly. So yeah, that's, that's, I think that's really great advice. Um, and then I think usually I would ask something like this towards the beginning, but we've kind of come full circle. I'm interested to hear how you're obviously very passionate about this. You have a lot of really great pieces of advice for people and um, experiences you can point to, like what drove you to this, to this career path specifically, kind of how did you land here and what, why is this your passion? Yeah, I will cite two different things. The first one is it goes all the way back to my roots in coming from humble beginnings So if it weren't for programs like Girl Scouts, like Save the Children, I wouldn't be where I am today. So first, it's a personal passion of mine because because of that. And then I'll also go back to this moment in time in my career when I switched from for-profit to non-profit. And realizing in that switch that there is something very unique that I can offer around how we integrate business and technology to scale social impact. So it's really around that scaling social impact and why I chose this career path. I mean, I, people have asked me, will you go back to IBM? Because I was 17 years in IBM and I never thought I was going to leave. And I was on a very clear path, senior executive. You know, again, if I could be so bold as to say, I might've had a shot at being on the pipeline for CEO in my future. And People will ask that continually. And my answer is no. I want to stay here and scaling social impact because I think I can offer something unique 
in terms of how we can apply and integrate both for-profit and nonprofit principles, how we can look at tech differently, data differently through human-centered design, and how we can truly scale the things that are working for social impact. And so this is why I stay in nonprofit. And sometimes I may be pulling out my hair because <laughs> I will say that international NGO is by far the hardest job I've ever had in my entire career but I will also say it has the potential to be the most rewarding job that I've ever had in my career and the difference that I can make and by talking to people locally and what they need and helping them with that and, and, and really just making a difference. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's a lot of listeners I'm sure can agree <laughs> in their various roles between the frustrations and also the, the reward you feel uh, when when the programs work, right? Um, well, thank you so much, Sarah, for joining us today for the podcast. It's been really great getting all these like, nuggets of gold and wisdom from you. Oh, my pleasure. Uh, so great to be here. Thank you so much for having me. And thanks to our listeners. I just want to remind you that, uh, that Humentum's podcast, Social X, can be found on uh, app, the Apple Store. It can be found on Spotify and anywhere else that you listen to podcasts. Thanks for joining us.